city's been so quiet since the boys in green went back. But it only took them three months to put Porton on the map. Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its cheers. When the players come on the field, the thousands singing in their ears. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timbers will be here. When today's guest retired, he was not only the Portland Timbers' all-time leader in minutes, but he was easily one of the most beloved and appreciated players in club history. I'm happy to have the player colloquially referred to as 1T, Scott Thompson. Scott, how are you doing? Doing well, Billy. Thanks for uh, having me on. Yeah, it's good to have you. So uh, you may know from some of these that after a little introduction like that, I like to read a longer bio so if you're okay for that I'll, I'll i'll embarrass you properly here and correct me if i get anything wrong <laughs> so scott was born in new york in 1981 but moved to california where he was a four-year starter for his high school team and played collegiately at ucla from 1999 to 2002 well with the bruins scott won the ncaa national championship when his 2002 bruins beat stanford in the final one to zero Scott was named to the all-tournament team that year, adding to his collegiate honors as Pac- All-Pac-10 three times and UCLA's back-to-back Defender of the Year in 2001 and 2002. Scott played for the U.S. U18, U20, and U23 national teams and was selected 16th overall in the 2003 MLS Super Draft by the Los Angeles Galaxy. In 2004, Scott was loaned to the then-A-League Portland Timbers and permanently signed with the club in 2005. Though he enjoyed training invitations with English sides Sunderland and Coventry City, he ultimately played his professional career for the Timbers, retiring in 2011 as the club's all-time leader in minutes played. Scott's Timbers career includes the 2004 and 2009 USL Commissioner's Cup, two USL First Division All-League selections, and being named one of USL First Division's top 25 players of the decade by USLsoccer.com for 2000 to 2009. As I'm sure he'll tell you, one of his career highlights also includes the Timbers 2010 Community Player of the Year Award. After playing, Scott went to work with Adidas America, where he was the senior marketing manager for soccer, with a specific focus on Major League Soccer. Scott has also spearheaded diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts in and outside the game of soccer. As a coach, Scott's resume includes stints as assistant for Portland Thorns FC and state championships at the high school and club levels. Scott holds a USF's, excuse me, USSF A and National Youth License and currently coaches United PDX in the Portland area. So. Wow. Thank you. Got it all. <laughs> I, I doubt that. I, I really doubt that. But I think it's a good start because um, it shows range and it shows that the game's always been pretty central to you um, and you've done a lot with it and you continue to. Um, yeah, I uh, the game's given me a lot. It's been uh, I've been fortunate enough to <clears throat> to be a part of it for what thirty plus years now, in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, you know, back when I first started coaching, it was actually as a assistant camp like counselor, camp coach, uh, and I was running summer camps when I was fourteen, fifteen years old down in uh, SoCal, and that uh the joy of kind of always being out there with kids and having a chance to teach and, and just have a good time, but also give back a little bit has always been at the, 
core of kind of what I do. And I think that's going to be a theme we'll see throughout is the idea of not just that, but access. I think you came through Portland at a time where uh, players were um, very accessible. Uh, and and also the game was accessible to players. The game outside of the stadium was accessible to players just because of the nature of, um, you know, USL, A-League, but also, you know, sharing a stadium with the Beavers. It was just a different time here, a different time of building. I want to start at the beginning. Excuse me. What was soccer like for you growing up? Uh, soccer was um, was a little bit of an escape. Uh, so my, my parents were first generation. So came over from England, late 70s, had me, you know, in the early 90s or some early 80s. Uh, but we weren't a family that did football, didn't play baseball, you know, running around the neighborhood, you know, we're playing tag in the street, maybe some stickball. Um, but soccer was always a thing that the family always played. And I was, I was always just good at it. I was always faster than everybody else. You know, I really enjoy playing up top and playing with the striker. And if I wasn't scoring seven or eight goals a game, like I was pretty upset with myself. Um, or if I got subbed out, I was the kid, you know, on the sideline crying because I couldn't get back in and score more. Uh, so rec- recreationally back in Hackettstown, New Jersey, you know, small town playing recreational soccer. I just, just kind of ran around a lot and had a good time scoring goals. And um, that has, has always been kind of my signature thing growing up, looking back that I was, when I'm at my happiest is when I'm running the most and kind of just outworking people. Um, and it's what's allowed me to get seen. Like, I've been seen on every team that I've been on. And that's what's allowed me to stand out to then progress to a better team or a better school or a national team has always just been standing out at one level and then making a jump to the next. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I think that's something that I remembered when I saw you play for the Timbers here, something that I definitely appreciated that stood out was how hard you worked. And I think that's something that Timbers fans really got behind is they could see it mattered to you and working hard was kind of the first thing. Um, aside from being a good person. And I think that clearly came through uh, when you're out at then PGE Park. And I'm, I'm, I've got a follow-up. I'm kind of curious. So you coach one of your sons right now. When you pull him out of the game, what's his reaction to you? <laughs> and, and you know, do you give uh, him a little bit of leeway because you know? No, I am uh, extremely hard on both my kids. Uh, I've coached them both now. They are the complete, not the complete opposite of how I play, but they have a creativity and a way to read the game at such a higher rate than I do. Um, so how they, like my older son is super creative, uh, tries to keep it very simple, likes to set up other guys um, on the field. My younger son has way more confidence than I ever had as a player, wants to be the guy to, to have the final shot, to take the free kick to take the game winning PK, like he'll put that pressure on himself. Um, he could miss 10 shots in a game and still ask for the 11th shot and, and be like, I'm, I'm going to make it. Um, so he is, uh, <laughs> they don't have my like kind of work ethic style, but they're, they consume the game way more than I ever did. Uh, they watch it all the time, whether it's YouTube, whether it's videos of highlights of champions league, I'd say my youngest son is more of a student of the game than I ever was. Do you think if you, to be fair, that it's more accessible now 
outside of the field, right? And so do you think you'd have consumed yeah. it the same way growing up or? I always loved playing the game. I didn't always appreciate watching the game. And I didn't really get into watching it until I was probably in the college <clears throat> where I was watching on like a regular basis. Whereas the first thing that my kids do now is like they'll come home and just watch highlights or, you know, we go out to practice and they know all the details of Champions League or they know what's happening. Uh, even with like not uh, World Cup, but they know what's happening in regional tournaments. They know what's happening with MLS or even college. So it's really cool to see like that level of accessibility, but there's also a hunger for it. And I think the combination of influencers, you know, guys, whether you see Neymar in Fortnite or you see, you know, players in FIFA and they're able to build their own teams, the ability to interact with the game is so much more, is easier and different than it was when, when I think we were coming up. And so when you were, when you were coming up, when did you know soccer's the thing? Like, was there a certain moment where you're just like, I'm going to take this maybe as far as I can, or was it just, you loved it? You loved working hard. You loved being out in it and you, you went for it. Yeah, it was always, uh, I just loved playing and it always kind of came to me, if that, if that makes sense. So when I, I never expected to go play professionally when I was in New Jersey. And I was on uh, a pretty good team that was able to compete at the state and regional level. When I moved to California, uh, I didn't have a team to play on right away. And it wasn't until I started playing high school soccer that I got exposed to uh, some guys who played for the Patty Dories. And I got invited to play uh, with that club, which is one of the top clubs in, in SoCal. Uh, but... I got recruited for UCLA being seen at a high school tournament by Ziggy Schmidt. And he went to, he was actually there to watch somebody else play. He wasn't there to watch me. And that's what exposed me to UCLA. But even then I didn't have aspirations to go play professionally. Uh, I always wanted to be a teacher, finding ways to help people uh, was kind of always my thing growing up. And yeah, every level that I went to, I got exposed coach that then opened a door that said hey we thought about this or that option and that's what led me to the galaxy it's what led me to different national teams was just kind of always going back to working hard and getting seen by the right coach at the right time yeah there's a lot in there i want to ask you about as a follow-up the first is i can't tell you how many people have i've interviewed probably 16 because you're the 16th who well that's not true because some didn't play but who were f discovered for lack of a better word when somebody was out somewhere watching somebody else and it's Definitely. so often that if you if you're doing the right things you you know the right things will happen like they're i don't know how many people just get you know somebody's out watching a player and you score three goals against them or you you're just you know you have some good tackles or you you play well your attitude's right your work rate's right and and they start thinking wait a minute who's this person I mean, I always, I always try to be the, the guy that would do all the extra things that maybe no one wanted to do. I always wanted to be the guy that could um, help out and cover others. Um, you know, I got a lot of joy tracking guys down when, you know, they were on a breakaway to goal and being able to stop that play or, you know, running all over the field and getting up the field to help on the attack, then tracking back and then having to go defend. Um, I really enjoyed that. I think 
part of that with the Timbers was because I was coming off of being injured and not being able to play for almost two years. Um, coming out in the field and be able just to run and run around, uh, there was there was almost like a little kid joy about it that you know, I think right place, right time, and allowed me to do that and that flexibility to just go run around. I mean, Bobby Howe back then, there wasn't like a ton of structure. Like it was basically, I'm going to put the best eleven guys in the field and let them do what they do best. Um, so he was he was really good about allowing us the freedom to play, and I think I really enjoyed that freedom. Yeah, uh, it's you. You've kind of touched on something: the game within the game, and I think a lot of players enjoy that. Like you could, you know, I think the fans a lot of times leave with the result on their hearts, uh, but and as a player, you do too because you want to you know, you want to do right by them and by the game, but those little things within the game bring so much joy, right? Like tracking somebody down or, you know, helping somebody else on your team be successful when maybe they're a little tired, you, you track their guy down so you can get, you know, little things like that. Um, yeah, it's, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the the best partnerships were the guys who I knew who I could like give them the ball and let them go be creative. And they also knew that I would help cover them when, they needed that breather or maybe they couldn't get back to defend. Yeah. And so you also mentioned high school soccer a little bit. And I, I th- is it different now in California? When I, there was a time where I was coaching in the U S soccer development Academy and you mentioned Patiadores because, you know, we played them a great club, but the, the challenge was always, how do we take a culture in the U S that does rely on high school soccer and turn it into something that's more uh, Academy based where the levels are different, but at the same time you played high school soccer and that was an important exposure and socially for a lot of players who are on the south side of fully being developed it's it's also important uh what was your high school experience like and is that different now for a kid who wants to play high school versus go on the path toward you know up the pyramid i think high school is, is the same in the sense that it's an ability as a social tool to help you get to meet people get to know people get to get exposed to um different styles of play that you wouldn't normally see. And I do think there's a function and a need for high school sports. Now, will high school sports be the the main recruiting mechanism for players? Probably not. You know, you see the best kids now going into the various MLS academies. Now that MLS is expanded with MLS Next, MLS is the destination if you're one of those t- top players. And if you're in a region of the country that maybe doesn't have that access, you're probably getting scouted by now teams in Mexico or other teams from Europe coming over um, as that next level or a different opportunity. Even within USL, their ability to scout players, develop players. I think, what was it? Sacramento had the youngest player uh, assigned a professional contract, right? So now you have uh, not just MLS, but now you have other leagues in the country developing younger players. Um, so high school soccer is still valuable, but it's valuable in different ways. Um, and I think you can still go play professionally and not be in an academy, <clears throat> but it's going to be a different pathway as opposed to when I was coming up, you had to be on a good high school team and a good club team to have a chance to go to a good college, which at the time college was that mechanism that the academy is now. And how, okay, so you mentioned uh, the late Ziggy, Ziggy Schmid. How did you end up at UCLA? And it sounds like maybe you were recruited by him, but you never played for him. 
Yeah. So I, um, at the time, I think I had Notre Dame and Santa Clara as like my two main schools. Uh, and it wasn't until UCLA came on board that I was, I mean, I, I didn't think I had a chance of getting into UCLA. So I didn't have it on my radar until he had reached out. Uh, Ziggy got the LA Galaxy job this summer as I was coming into UCLA. So I was recruited by him. Uh, his assistant coach, Steve Rammel, was still there. Um, and yeah, I got recruited into UCLA, which at the time had just won a national championship. <clears throat> the entire starting squad was a part of the, uh, you know, men's national team, under 23 national team. So you had guys like Carlos Bocanegra, Sasha Victorine, Pete Vianis, um, you know, all guys have gone on huge careers in the game, whether it's with the Galaxy, Lenny United. And yeah, that was the team I had to like break into to get <clears throat> to get minutes and kind of that same mentality of just working hard. Um, I was able to get on the field uh, five minutes here, 10 minutes there, just because I outworked people and I got thrown in late in the game and would get minutes there. Um, but yeah, essentially I got Ziggy was the one that recruited me and I had a great time there. And then he was the one that drafted me into the Galaxy uh, as well that was it 2000 2003 um and then too i didn't know that i wanted to go play play professionally i didn't have an agent at the time didn't know that i would get drafted i was in i think portugal with the u23 olympic team uh for a camp and i found that i got drafted and it was kind of a shock and i had to figure out what to do next <laughs> get myself organized get myself in the camp and then figure out kind of next steps because I was still living on campus at the time at UCLA. Yeah, and we'll circle back to UCLA, but I want to stay here for a second. You got drafted um, in the MLS Super Draft. You were drafted 16th overall in the second round, but what I think people may not understand necessarily is there were only 10 teams at the time. Major League Soccer had 10 teams, <laughs> um, which is, and I'm not, like, it's amazing now. I'm glad that's not a case anymore, but that means there were fewer opportunities to play professionally. And so the fact that you got picked, um, you know, by one of the 10 teams is saying quite a bit, especially with the draft class you were in, because there were a few quite notable players in that. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I was very fortunate. Uh, um, I had a, I had a good stint at UCLA that set me up to go into the galaxy and, I mean, I, I definitely look back and I'm always like, well, what would have happened if I didn't get hurt or if I was still able to move at the same speed that I was able to as when I was younger. But at the end of the day, it was, I think if things happened for a reason and I was meant to, to be up here in Portland and I, I do look back and I, I see it as special to be drafted. Um, but I'm also very mindful too that there are hundreds of great players out there too that didn't have the opportunity back then. To your point, because the league was so much smaller back then, you know, it's, it's incredible now that we're up to 30 teams in, in the country. Um, and then the umpteenth number of uh, semi-pro, you know, USL teams that the game has expanded so much in the last 30 years that it's great to see that kids now have that explosion, that opportunity to go play. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think there's a person listening to this that is upset that things didn't work out for you the way you may have wanted them to once you got drafted and ended up here. Right. <laughs> I think they're pretty thankful for that. But what's also interesting is you didn't just get drafted second round. They traded 
an MLS champion, Brian Mullen, away to get the draft pick that they picked you with? <laughs> right? Or was there more to that? It's, I, no, no. I, I I laugh because, you know, I've, I've had a chance to meet Brian before, and he's been a part of some, like, really good Galaxy teams. And it's um, – you, you never know what's going to happen, right? And so I think you make these decisions and choices, you know, with the best intent. And I, I coming into preseason, yeah, like I, I thought that I could start for the Galaxy. I mean, I remember we were doing uh, the beep test and, like, I crushed it. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember in preseason, like, I was flying high. And I remember guys like Chris Albright and Ezra Henderson, you know, making comments. I think the back line at the time was – it was Albright, uh, Ezra, Alexi, uh, and Danny Califf were all on the squad. Ooh. And those guys were like heavy hitters. You know, they just come off the championship. And being able to like just to come in and like have that work rate and make an impression, I, I took a lot of pride in that. So when I got hurt, it was a huge blow to my, <clears throat> my ego because I've never had an injury to that extent you know, ever in my career. So it was it was definitely a hard learning to to navigate that and then have to sit on the sidelines to watch, you know, an, an entire season go by without actually being able to help. Something that's interesting is we're talking about 2002, 2003. And so you get drafted by the LA galaxy who themselves coming off a championship, right? Um, did they the year yeah. before? So this is a kind of a theme with UCLA as well, but things are looking good. The world cup veterans are noticing you. You tore your ACL, right? Yeah. Is that what, what happened there? And you you're, you have to sit and watch that whole first year. Um, is that a point in your career at all where you're thinking, maybe I've taken this as far as I could? Honestly, I didn't know what to expect or what to what was going to happen. It was, it was literally one day at a time to focus on getting healthy again. Um, just spent a lot of time with the, the head trainer down there, uh, you know, Ivan Pereira, just getting myself back in healthy conditions. And I was able to, I think the end of that year, get back into the national team pool, further get healthy. And they got hurt again preseason in 2004. And that was kind of the final nail of, I now have the stigma of the of the player that was always hurt as opposed to the guy who just come off a national championship won and was always ready to compete. Uh, so, you know, that, that's what led to the uh the loan to the Timbers and and making that trek up here. Uh, and because they had brought in other guys in my position that were honestly playing better than I was too. So a combination of coming off being hurt, guys playing better. Um, I knew I still wanted to keep playing, but I also didn't know what options were out there. Okay. And there, there, you know, as we've talked about, there weren't a ton. And this is still a time where a professional soccer player in the U.S. could make a living playing outdoor soccer, not with Major League Soccer specifically, but outdoor soccer and USL or A-League. And then indoor soccer in the offseason. There were still a lot of players doing that sort of two-way movement, right? Yeah. Then that was never going to be um, the thing for me. Like, I I enjoy playing on a full field. Uh, indoor and the tighter spaces was never my 
you know, they're my style of play. It's hard to live three or four different places a year just trying to to make a living. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard enough just staying in one spot <laughs> right. in, in Portland or, or L.A., to be honest, because back then it was – if you weren't in the top five of the roster, it was a struggle. Like, the right. money back then is not the same that it is now. So correct me if I'm wrong, but Major League Soccer – first year player contract when it started say 1996 1997 was like $36 $37,000 or something right it was pretty low and you had to hope so for maybe was, an endorsement there was or... that level yeah. and then there was the developmental player level which was about a third of that oh my goodness so if you were a local player you were able to sign a developmental contract and I think I might have been like a senior developmental player and so I was basically able to use the rest of my uh, college scholarship to keep my housing at UCLA and then be on this developmental contract. And I'd basically drive down from Westwood. Um, oh, at the, at the time, we were training at the Rose Bowl. But then we eventually moved to uh, Carson uh, when the Home Depot Center got built. Uh, so I was checking back and forth down there. Uh, and that's how it was the first year. And then the second year, the team signed a deal uh, and put up all the players in a, in a high rise out of Long Beach. So it made it a little bit easier and they covered kind of cost of living, but it was still bare bones uh, back then. Right. Okay. You mentioned the Home Depot Center. How important to the development of an area? I mean, Los Angeles doesn't have a, they're not hurting for players in that area, right? <laughs> but even, could you imagine a center like that here in, in Portland or even just in or the surrounding areas and how important that could be for the development at all levels for, for our, you know, all genders? It's something to this day that I still think needs to happen in Portland and I am a huge advocate for. Uh, while Delta Park is a great venue with multiple fields, um, having a location where you can have a stadium classroom settings, locker rooms, uh, both turf and grass fields for multiple events, activations. It, it is pretty important. Um, the fact then, back, you know, back then, Carson was the spot for the national team. So all the national team trainings were held there at the centralized location. And as a young player coming up, it was very easy to go watch, not even just go watch, but just to interact with national teams players on both men's and women's side just walking to and from the field you know that level of access i think is super important for young players to see their idols coming up like it's one thing to watch players on youtube or even in a stadium at a, at a game setting it's another thing to see them out in the community be able to go say hi talk to them um, ask questions so you can learn what you need to do as a young player to get to that level right and so now I want to back up just a little bit. So you come into uh, UCLA as a freshman. They're, they're fresh off the national championship. And you made it to the Final Four that first year, right? That group. What what was that experience like? And, um, you know, you didn't win the championship that first year. You ended up being able to do that a few years later, your senior year. But what was that experience like as a freshman and as a member of that team? And then, uh, you know, how hard was it to get back there? And then how did it feel once you won it your senior year? Uh, so it was, so I tell people this all the time, UCLA was probably 
one of the best four year experiences of my entire life. Like if I had to rank it from, you know, meeting my wife, having my kids <laughs> and raising a family, UCLA would be the top five. And so coming in that freshman year, the guys in the team were incredible. The training was great. The facilities were amazing. UCLA itself was a great environment. Um, and it was one of those things that you kind of always just expect to win. Like the mindset at UCLA was always, we are going to be competing for a national championship. And so being able to beat Virginia or beat some heavy hitters that year um, was incredible. And, th and that game against IU, we were down 2-0. <clears throat> uh, I think I got, I got subbed in in like the last 10 minutes and then be able to claw. We clawed one goal back. Then I scored the goal to tie it and then to go into quadruple overtime to then get scored on. Like, it was like heart-wrenching and it was so cool because we did so much work to like get back into that game. But then also I kind of just expected like, oh, we'll just do it again next year. And I think that was the hardest thing. And the realization of the game is that it's not always given to you. And so sophomore year, junior year were extremely hard years. Sophomore year was hard because we had a new class of freshmen that were probably better than most of the sophomores and juniors. So there was that uh, butting of heads of like freshmen, their ego thinking that we're going to start and play versus the guys who, who had been there. Um, and so there were some dynamics that we had to work through. Junior year, we still weren't good enough. I and mean, I think we lost... Um, what was it? Maybe the first, second round of the tournament. And then senior year was just all about, we're going to be this great collection of 26 guys that aren't the best, but we're going to be really good as a team. And we scored a lot of goals that year. And I think I really, myself, Ryan Fudigaki, uh, as captains, we had a really good balance about how to motivate the guys. Um, and we're humble enough to know that this is not a given and we have to grind to get here. And we did that. And so beating Stanford, and Stanford was a really good team, you know, but to be able to beat them three times in a year says a lot about the, the quality of our team that year. How, uh, how often when you see Lee Morrison, do you remind him, even though he wasn't playing that year of that game <laughs> or of that season? Uh Lee, Lee and I, so we were two years off. So I only had a chance to play against Lee like once or twice. Um, but yeah, it's Lee was always a, a better defender when we were younger. And then I think I was just fortunate, right place, right time to keep playing longer than, than he was. Mm -hmm. um, but with Stanford, it's always tough because whenever you give the Stanford guys a hard time, like, yeah, we might have won in that moment, but the Stanford guys, I've lost to them in other uh, arenas. So, like, Roger Levesque, Le Levesque, we beat him one, you know, in college, but yet he beat me when he was at the Sounders and I was at the Timbers. He was part of that 2009 group that won uh, the Open Cup. Uh, Chad Marshall. You know, beat him in college. He went on to have a what, 14, 15 year career <laughs> with uh, Columbus Crew and, and the Sounders. So, yeah, a lot of good guys in that squad. And then there's always a healthy dancer, but this, the Stanford guys are pretty good. 
Like it's it's tough to give them a hard time because at some point, whether it's youth, whether it's college, whether it's professionally, they they do find a way to win. You wouldn't say the same about the uh, Sounders guys, though. <laughs> right? Here's the really tough part about the Sounders guys is as much as I couldn't stand playing against them, and I'll be the first one to be like, yeah, there was a good Portland-Seattle rivalry that was like borderline hatred at, at some times. They are probably some of the nicest guys off the field and some of the guys like I enjoyed working with the most um, when I was at Adidas. So as an organization, incredible organization, and yet as a Portlander now, like I could say, yes, like I can't stand playing against them, but they are really good people. I've got to tell you when, when um, there was a time uh, for an earlier piece, I interviewed Tom Dutra. And he was talking about how Brian Smetcher and he were so happy for Ziggy to be at Seattle to witness the Portland Seattle rivalry. And then that first year he was that Ziggy was the head coach when Portland was in major league soccer. And so that was for them to have him be part of that with what he's given to the game and recognize the moment in the game that's bigger than all of us uh, was pretty powerful discussion to have. And it kind of did remind me that, yeah, you know, it's, it's about the game and that is bigger than us. Um, but when the game starts, totally different. Right? <laughs> For 90 minutes, different. Different rules. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how did – so at UCLA, you you finished, and before you got drafted, you said you were with the national team when that happened. I'm curious how the national team worked. You played at a few different ages. Um, you know, you represented, I said, at U18, 20, and U23. How did the national team – how does it work at the youth level, or how did it work at the time at the youth level? How did players get selected? How did – that fit in with college, uh, you know, another thing. Yeah. So at, at, at U18 and U20, essentially whoever the head coach was at the time would create his, their pool of players to be selected. Um, when I was at U18, it was the Santa Clara head coach. At U20, I think Thomas Rongen was the head coach. Uh, and then at U23, it was uh, uh, Glenn Mooch uh, Meyernick, who at the, uh, was the Colorado Rapids head coach. And so at U18 and U20, like I hands down was a shadow of myself. Like I was so nervous playing at that level. I think I gave the ball away maybe every single time I touched it. Uh, and it wasn't until at the U23s where I felt really comfortable with Mooch and just kind of how he went about things. Uh, that made me feel like I really could compete at that level. And when we went into Olympic qualifying, I think I ended up being like the first alternate to get subbed in or to get brought in if anybody got hurt. And ultimately we didn't qualify. We, I think we lost down in Mexico. Um, we didn't make the Olympics that year, but that was essentially how, how you were selected. So either there was the one track where you kind of went through your, your state organization whether it was the regional pool, state pool, and then the larger kind of uh, region one, two, three, four pool. Uh, or you were selected by coaches who scouted different colleges um, and, and brought players in. Okay. And so, yeah, did, were you, when you, so when you got drafted, were you even aware that that was happening? Was that that was a possibility or uh, <laughs> like what was on your radar at that time? Uh, I was aware, uh, we knew that some of the other guys 
already knew what draft pick they were going. Um, and so, like I said, we were in the hotel in Portugal and just got a phone call just being like, yeah, you got drafted in the second round. Um, but I, I honestly didn't know what I was going to do. Like I was, I think when that moment hit, it was like, oh crap, like I got to find an agent. I got to figure out what I'm doing when I get back. Uh, I think I was pretty, I was pretty naive as a youngster. Like if I could go back and do it again, I probably would. I've asked more questions, probably accepted my abilities more and kind of been more proactive. Like, yeah, this could be a career path as opposed to kind of just letting things fall as, as they would. Um, so yeah, it was, um, like I said, it was, it was really unexpected. It, was, it, it wasn't to the level of detail and fanfare that you have now with the draft. Right. Uh, so it's, uh, so you, you, you played, you got hurt in preseason, which was a, a devastating blow. You work your way back and then you get loaned to, to Portland, Oregon, right? How did you find out you were getting loaned to Portland and, uh, you, you've told me before, but I want to share this with other people. How did you get here and what was that like? Yeah. So I, I think we had come back from, uh, trip to France. So we're in preseason with the Galaxy. Uh, I got hurt again. We came back from that trip. And I think maybe it was a few weeks later that um, Ziggy was like, yeah, it's, it's, we're really deep in the position. Want to get you extra minutes. They're going to send you up to, to Portland uh, to play. And outside of the Trailblazers, I really didn't know much about Portland. I didn't know much about the Pacific, Pacific Northwest just in general. Um, and so a buddy of mine, uh, Josh Saunders, um, he was playing up here. So I gave him a shout. He was like, yeah, you can come stay with me. Essentially I got in my car and drove the 15 hours, did it straight, um, came straight to the stadium and literally there was a game happening like an hour later. And I think the two biggest things that were the immediate, like, eye-opening things of like this could be a really cool experience was one the, the fans you know you had at the time about a thousand of the timbers army guys um or not guys but timbers army fans like really involved in the game and then uh timber jim up on up on the pole hitting the drum and those two things were like wow this place is pretty cool because even in you know playing in Carson and having uh, great fans down in, in, you know, at the Home Depot Center, it wasn't the same as up here. It's never been the same. And I think the, the thing that's always drawn me to Portland was the connection with people in the city and, and being made to be, you know, feeling welcome right away. So being able to go to a game and walk across the street to the bullpen and go have a drink and not have it be awkward, but just have it be like a really chill, like, yeah, people are enjoying asking you questions about the game. But if there was a moment where, like, we needed our own time, people respected that. Or there's just a general appreciation that I think the game misses a little bit of that. I think Portland, as opposed to other cities, is still better. But it would be nice, I think, to be able to bring that back in some way, shape, or form, where there's that genuine connection with people 
that you don't always need to have this barrier or wall of I'm a professional and you're a fan. Because at the end of the day, like what you said, like we're all stewards of this game. And this is like, we all have a moment to make the game or make the team or make the club a little bit better to then pass it on to that next generation of fans and players and enthusiasts. Yeah. And and if we're doing our job right, that's exactly it. It's going to be here after us and we're going to matter less. You know, we can almost do more harm than good um, to the game. But there's a lot I want to kind of sit there with because you came here in 2004 and on loan. But by 2005, you were on the cover of the media guide. Um, How fast did your transition to Portland as uh, quote unquote home happen or, or did it really happen? So while I was having great seasons playing up here in the off season, because of the way that the A League was set up at the time, not really knowing what I was doing in the off season was 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 difficult to try to figure out. Do I go back home to SoCal and make another run playing with the Galaxy, or do I try another MLS team? Um, You know, and I had gone on trial with the Columbus crew for a little while when Ziggy went over there and nothing really felt right. Even when I went over to, to Sunderland and Coventry, Sunderland was a great experience and yet it still didn't feel all the way right. Uh, and I think they knew that I knew that like I was still under contract with the Timbers and I wasn't able to play well enough for them to buy me out of my current contract to then replace their current right back at the time, you know. So while I might have played well, it wasn't well enough to go into, uh, you know, right away with the premier level team. Um, now, looking back in retrospect, if I had stayed in England, I probably would have found a club to play for, but I probably would have been bouncing around. And my style has never been one to like bounce around from team to team to team. Like once I find a team, like that's the squad that I'm with. Um, as long as I can be in Portland was that squad. So that's, that's why I stayed as long as I did. And I think being able to, to meet my wife up here and have my, my boys and, you know, Tay, my oldest, having him while I was still playing is definitely part of the reasons why I stayed. You know, I wanted to make sure that they had a solid and consistent uh, place to grow up just, you know, for, for their development. So combination of things is why why I stayed in Portland. And it's wild because you're mentioning, so the biggest thing about Columbus at the time or back in the day, however you want to say it is, that was a soccer specific stadium. And that was the the hallmark for soccer in this country, right? That was a big deal. You mentioned, I mean, obviously any team outside of the country that is a professional soccer team, soccer specific stadium, even grass. But you made a career in Portland, and I don't think anyone who was a fan from 2004 to 2011 in Portland of the Timbers can picture a team without you, right? It just doesn't it it doesn't work that way, Scott. But you played in a stadium that you weren't even the first priority of the stadium. You had to play on a baseball field, yeah, right. Like thinking of those two things, it's it's it means there's something more than more than soccer. There's something more to this place but what was it like being in that you know how do you navigate a pitcher's mound <laughs> it was it was rough and i think it played into my mentality of 
not being perfect or not being the most polished, but I'm still going to find a way to win. I'm going to find a way to work my ass off to, to be the best I can be. And so if it was, you know, having the dirt mound on the pitch or, you know, people don't know back in the day, there was no rubber uh, pellets in the turf. So it was a hard, flat turf to play on. And, you're playing some games in turf shoes like it was just a mentality like that was it was like a little bit of that bad news bears vibe but it was also part of like who we were uh, and i think certain clubs and organizations take the city take the vibe take the stadium and make it their own right so if you look at you know the raiders back when they were in oakland i think that's kind of that same uh, mentality and and I, I i enjoyed it i knew teams hated playing at our stadium i knew I knew it was hard, but I, it also, I felt like I was faster playing here. Um, and maybe that's because of my own hangups with, you know, speed and, and losing a bit of that you know, coming off my injury. But it, it felt like home. It felt like my home. And it felt like I had a point to prove that teams had to earn their results when they came here. And it's amazing that you, we mentioned that, but we, we haven't even talked about You've mentioned Bobby Howe. I mean, this is somebody. Who, this is someone who played at West Ham and came over. Jimmy Conway's yeah. coaching. Um, I mean, it's this is to me, and I feel like after now we're in episode. We've done fifteen episodes of this. Uh, I feel like I'm finally starting to get at this. You said, you know, it's we're not perfect, and when we stop trying to be perfect and just be ourselves, I think we're even better. And that is starting to hit something. I don't know that um, Merritt Paulson will bring back. Um, you know, dirt spots on the field um, <laughs> to help with that. But I think there's something that, uh, you know, because of you and your contemporaries and the, the NASL before you and and now MLS, um, I feel like we've reached a point where we've, we've sort of, I don't want to say teeter on entitlement, but we definitely expect it's going to be here. But uh, it came from having to, to work for something and working for something that was ours. How do, how do we sort of, reconnect because one thing I'm hearing from you is um, and you've seen from your perspective you've seen fan support grow Timbers Army when you came um, you know grew and it it was it's probably the closest to seeing that first 75 season seeing fans come in and the sport grow seeing the Timbers Army grow I would say is analogous to that and so here we are in 2023 about to start the, the 49th season 2024 how do we find those organic connections between everybody in the community who's there for the same thing when we have something that's also pretty big because major league soccer is a big deal now. Right. And it has to be forward looking. It has to be international looking. Uh, but it was also grown by, by being like, you know, organic and homegrown. Um, how do we navigate that? I think that's the, the million dollar question, right? If we can, find the right mix of things yeah i think i think there's always an opportunity to continue to grow build bonds and build community and no matter what's happened over the last five or so years that is is a drop in the bucket in the grand scheme of things and so i think it's a lot of the work that you're doing right now to connect the different generations to get folks who have stayed in Portland to, to continue to put back into the sport um, and tell these stories to a younger generation. Like realistically, 
the game now is in MLS. MLS and the Portland Timbers of this era are the stewards of the game. And so it's the team's role now to get a group of younger kids to believe in the team and believe in the the organization and the city so that they can be stewards in the future. But in order to do that, they have to have some connection or some awareness of what's happened in the past, not only to not repeat the mistakes of the past, but then also take what was great about this city and what made it so special and use those things to keep pushing the game forward. So like in my eyes, Portland's never going to be a club or a team or a city that puts millions upon millions of dollars into the game. It's not going to be about buying the top, top player. It's going to be about the city having its own unique style and flavor and outworking other teams. Like there's not a, there's not an alumni that I've spoken to over the years that doesn't share a common thread about not being maybe the best player, but working really hard or having a love of the city and then playing because they love the people around them or the team team members that they're with. So that's the common thread from Nick Hoban to myself. Even when you watch, you know, Char or Valeri, like they kind of have that mentality. Now Valeri might be a better player than all of us combined, but he still worked his backside off, you know, to, to get those goals and get those assists and be there for the team. So if that's the common thread, I think that's the thing that allows us to to build the future and build community and to set up that next player that has those qualities to keep this Timbers ethos going into the future. Yeah, and that's a connection that that's been a, an underlying theme through all of this. Even um, you know, um Jimmy Kelly was was it Jimmy Kelly? No. Um some of the early players have talked about connecting with other uh, connecting with fans and connecting with each other. And just that whole idea that if they see, if, if people see how hard you're working, they're going to support you and the results won't matter. And the irony is when that happens, the results, they come. And so I do. Okay, I'm not going to ask you to um, remember this game specifically, but I am going to ask you about a very interesting game. Uh, 2009, uh, July 23rd, the Portland Timbers and the Puerto Rico Islanders tie 0-0, which means nothing. But there's a fantastic TIFO that happens there. That's the game you became the all-time leader in, in minutes for the Portland Timbers, and that's the 0017 TIFO. How cool was that? It was it was pretty cool. Like I don't get super emotional, and I think I I teared up when I saw that pop up because um, I, I had no idea that they were the fans were doing it. Um, and it was just a really cool TV. <laughs> I think my my wife actually got a shirt made with the image of it, um, just so that she could have it and have it around the house, and so. Being able to to have that moment or be able to go back and show my kids that moment uh, is is something special. I when I talk about really loving this city and loving the fans, and those are the moments that further cements that like love and care. You know, doing something that you don't have to do just to show as a thank you means the world. And I think a lot of places 
need that and they want that, but they don't know how to do it. And this place is special because you have folks that have found a way to connect genuinely and in an authentic way. And for me, that was an authentic moment. Didn't have to happen. They used their own resources to organize and do it. And even though we tied that game 0-0, I can honestly say like I, that meant the world to me in that game. And I probably ran more in that game than any other game that season because of it. Yeah, how can you not, right? Maybe that's, yeah, I'd be buzzing for a while. And so later, uh, this is kind of interesting and in a way to sort of, I want to segue out of, of playing as we go, but I, I don't want to actually leave this without saying, uh, you know, this last season, I took my son to paint Tifo. I thought it would be fun. I've never done it. And I took him. And then, uh, nice. you know, later in the season, I'm there with, you know, his best friend and his best friend's dad. And we're, it's a really cool way to participate in the game. And, you know, I know there's a lot going on between what our culture is and, and you know, the army and the front office and who we are as a club. But the fact that there's a place in the game for people uh, beyond playing. And, you know, anytime I spent doing the TIFO or working with the Timbers Army or anyone, it's just people really care about this sport. They really want to participate in the way they can. And having that spot in the game, it was just it was great. And, you know, they they're out there doing it because they want the players to feel that. And again, I hate to go back to a sounder, but when I was talking to Tom Dutra about that, because we helped paint the TIFO for the the, the game where Spria had the bicycle this year, um, mm-hmm. he was like, oh, that's so cool. I'm going to tell my guys that, that I know, you know, the guys paint that. And like people, players appreciate that, even if it's not your team, right? Like they get, I'm telling you, people get, if they're really tuned into this game, how much bigger the game is than us and how we're just momentary caretakers. And that doesn't just include players. Um, so spe- speaking of momentary caretakers, this is weird. Your last game in PGE Park, or the last game for the 2010 Timbers, was against Puerto Rico, and it was just uh, it, the season ended early as far as home matches were, because that's when the the park was getting renovated, right? And so you work yep. your way into the playoffs, and then you've got to go on the road for a month, and then you get a home playoff match, and it's at Merlo Field. What was that time like? Because on one hand, uh, that's pretty cool because it's it's becoming a soccer specific stadium. On the other hand, hey guys, we got a season going on here. Yeah, that was that was an awkward time. Um, you know, if the game seems like this magical thing and you have all these magical moments, like the TIFO, like the Golden Goal that you're a part of, <clears throat> I guess we don't really talk enough about the, the awkward moments, and that was one of them where. I was on the tail end of my career, essentially being prepared to be ushered out as a newer, younger group of players were coming in. Um, so, you know, I wasn't in the plans for MLS and the club is, you know, really clear about <clears throat> letting me know that. Uh, we were having ongoing discussions about working in the front office and doing other community things. Uh I still felt like I could still play and the club wanted to go younger to, you know, be able to compete at the MLS level. And so having the stadium being renovated while it was exciting was also bittersweet because essentially it was like building my own coffin, if you will, to the end of my career. And even that game at Merlot, uh, having to sit on the sidelines and watch it, uh, 
was also difficult because I knew that that was the end. I knew that I wasn't going to <clears throat> go play in another A-League or USL team. And while I had some interest from other clubs, I had made my home here in Portland and I wasn't ready to uproot everybody to go play somewhere else. And so I had to make the hard decision of, do I stay in a city that's been my home the last you know, 10, you know, 10 ish years or go keep playing somewhere else. And I, I had to make that call to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to stay here and retire and, and make that transition into the front office, into coaching. And my time as a steward of the game had, had moved on to a younger generation. In that role, I will say, uh, because I think you're doing a lot for the game yeah. now and you have since I want to ask something that, um, this is on my mind and I don't think it's talked about enough, but how hard as a player is it as a player, as a person is to transition from not playing anymore, no matter what you have lined up, because, you know, I know my career wasn't um, anything compared to, you know, your career and what we've been talking about, but it was still hard. It was still hard to say, you know, this thing that's been that part of my life and identity it physically, as well as emotionally is gone now and not like gone. It's just different. Right. And that's a hard adjustment for, I think, anybody who's been playing the game, who's been out on the field. And even now, maybe when you go to the, you go to a field and there are certain things that kind of bring back little bits of that. But how hard is that? How hard is that transition is for, for people? Uh, it's extremely hard. And we don't talk about it enough as a society and as a, as a, as a sport. And I don't think the resources to set up players as they transition are there where they need to be yet because it's so hard. Like I, I personally went through my own identity crisis um, during that period because I was still around the stadium. I was still known for the things I did on the field. And yet the game was moving away from me in a direction toward younger, faster, more glitz, more glamour with, with MLS. And so that was hard. It was hard to be still be a part of it and to support that piece while also still wanting to remember and be nostalgic of what I had given to the game. Um, and it took, it took a lot of help from friends and family to get through that period of time because you go from not having kind of your core friend group of the locker room, that's gone. The routine and the regimen of training every single day, and the travel, that's gone. And you have to find your new routine, uh, both with family and with kind of what you're doing uh, work-wise. And so it took some time. It took me probably two, three years to fully transition and like let go of playing. Um, and now it's something I try really hard to help play up-and-coming players and players who do lead the game and help mentor and, and kind of guide them because it's it hasn't gotten any better. It's still very difficult. Um, players don't really think ahead to the what if or when, when my career is going to end. No one really thinks about that. All you think about is, okay, what do I need to do to be successful on the field for this game uh, or this chapter of the season? Um, so yeah, it's, it's an ongoing thing that I think the team, the league can put more emphasis on to help guys as they make that transition or keep them more involved to help build the storytelling around the club. Okay. So you've hit on a couple of things. I think as a player, 
it's the antithesis of being a player because as a player you can't think ahead right that's the worst thing you could probably do and when you're in your career is think yeah you know what's next season like or what's the season anyway and the, the thing you ended on is where i want to ask you about next before i talk about your time with adidas is how good of a community would a soccer team have if they had more onboarding and if they had more i don't want to call it aftercare but if they had something that you know that that historical connection or just that sort of this is what we're about as an onboarding and then after the fact is they they looked after their players in, in ways that helped them transition because it is hard and i know on an international level seen... yeah go ahead yeah no i you're seeing more clubs invest resources into just that whether it's a a, a player caretaker uh or player relations manager type role um, you see it for guys who don't live in the states who are coming over that need that additional support for their families or just navigating a new city i think the next iteration of that role is okay what does your post career look like what are the how are we setting you up with sponsors that sponsor the teams we build out that network network even stronger or how do we keep you involved on the coaching side? So like the natural transition is to go into coaching or the academy so that younger players are hearing the stories of when you played. And so you see that with Manchester United, you know, Darren Fletcher, you, you see guys who have put their time in at the younger ages. But I still everybody can still be more proactive in terms of strategically placing professionals in different businesses or different um, industries that are going to help the umbrella of the club. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's the future. I think more roles of that needs to happen. I don't think we do enough to archive the moments on the field and archive the moments off the field so people are aware of everything that the club is doing or clubs are doing. Yeah, it's it's... I'm curious if Phil Neville's walked past Willie Anderson or met him yet when Willie Anderson, who was here for the 1975 team, still lives here. He was the first substitute used in association football uh, in England for Man U. Came through with, you know, uh, George Best. and um, It's just, right? Like, there's that connection, the same club. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, you know, Phil's a, a, a legend in the club for winning the first treble, right? And, we had, and that connection is here. Yep. And that's... You know, and I'm of course I'm going from 1975 to 2024. What it's going to be? I'm skipping so much, <laughs> right? But it, but it's just little things like that that are that are here. You know, even um, um, Liam Ridgewell won an FA Youth Cup with Aston Villa, as did Tony Betts, another 75 Timber. And you know, these are just little things. Um, you know, in some examples, yeah. but so so you went, you moved to Adidas in 2016, and you worked with Major League Soccer teams. I'm curious, uh, what did you do there? And what did you see about the game from the perspective that was different from as a player? Great question. So my time at Adidas was essentially uh, executing against the contract between MLS and Adidas. And so the the way that the, the agreement is structured is that there's the overarching sponsorship so Adidas is a, a league-wide sponsor and then has individual agreements with every single MLS club. And so the official on-field apparel provider um, for jersey training, 
and travel as well as the footwear provider. And so our job was a unique one because it wasn't just a sponsor client relationship where let's say it's Audi. Audi spends umpteen thousands of dollars, millions of dollars to get to the league. And then the league has to service that agreement. We had both sides of that where we were both the sponsor and had to make sure that that was happening and the uh, parts of the deal were being executed against. But then we were also a service provider by providing the equipment. And so my job was to kind of navigate and do both things and oversee the team of folks that worked with each individual club to make sure that they had their sponsorship dollars, their activations and events planned out, and had all of their apparel provided for them. And so it was a unique position because we are still growing the game on one hand. And at the time, let's see, we had onboarded Atlanta United, Minnesota United, LAFC, Cincinnati, I think Miami was the last uh, last club I had worked with right as I left. Um, so you're still growing the game. You're still growing, and you have these heavy hitter markets. But there was also this like polish about it too that was beyond just the early 2000s Timbers, if you will. So it's not teams playing on, you know, sharing a stadium with a baseball team and a, and a and a football team, or it's not, you know, not moving back and forth. Like you had some pretty polished organizations that were on the cusp of becoming, um, you know, billion dollar franchises globally while we're also still growing the game and trying to get exposure, even within Adidas itself. Like before Messi came over to the U S Adidas soccer in the U S was still looked down upon compared to Bayern Munich of the world, the Manchester United of the world, you know, it took a lot to get additional dollars here in that investment in the U S so it's it was a it was a fun job it was it was i enjoyed it while i was there but it was also extremely taxing and a lot of work and a lot of travel because you're trying to always convince folks to invest more in the game so what what got at what point did you decide there's something else you wanted to be doing and where did you go from there yeah so it really was um a combination of things where you know, I'd been with Adidas almost five years. COVID had hit, so things had shifted where we weren't able to do the normal events and activations in stadium. So you don't have any fans uh, in the game. George Floyd happened, and I, I was already doing a lot more work around diversity, equity, and inclusion and providing access uh, to fields and, and helping build fields and mini pitches in different cities across the country. Uh, and Black Players for Change had newly formed during that time frame and were advocating for more access, support, resources. And so it was a, a kind of combination of things that, one, the role that I was doing wasn't exactly the same, you know, five years later. Uh, two, I wanted to be closer to home and doing more work here in Portland. And three, I wanted to, you know, make sure that providing access um, and making the game and just work in general more inclusive were kind of the main things that made me uh, think and make a pivot and transition. Uh, and kind of right place, right time, a, a company was looking for somebody to kind of do all those things 
uh, not necessarily in sports, but in the in the agency space. And I uh, I had made a, a pivot kind of midway through COVID, and um, yeah, went into the kind of people and culture uh, arena, but doing it here locally in Portland. And that's good. I mean, that's that's important work, and I'm glad you did. Um, and I want to stay with that a little bit. The Columbus Crew just won MLS Cup. This interview is happening a week and a half yeah. after that. And uh, Wilfred Nancy is the first black coach to yeah. win MLS Cup. Can we talk a little bit about what that means and how important it is for people to see others like them in the sport, in the league, in positions of power and positions of success? And how important is that for the game as well? I think it's hugely important. <clears throat> I also recognize that I think Wilfred made a comment around how he's not surprised or that there should have been other black coaches before him that should have been the first. And it's, it's, there's two parts to it where you need to have that first person to kind of open the door and make and normalize that to happen. And you see it a little bit, you see it more in basketball. Now we have more GMs, head coaches, uh, are folks of color. And that's become normalized now. Not as much in football, still happening at other sports. And I'll be the first one to say that if you walk into a meeting with MLS owners, the majority are white, male, um, older generation of folks. Majority of leaders at the MLS league office kind of same demographics. Now that's changing. And there is more of an effort and an awareness around making it more inclusive and diversifying leadership. Um, I would also say it's not happening at a quick enough rate. You know, so if you have um, this, this season has been interesting because if you have on the one end, Wilfred Nancy winning and being the first black head coach to win um, in major league soccer, <clears throat> you also have Ezra Henderson uh, Robin Frazier, who got let go earlier this year, both who are great coaches who have not been placed as head coaches at other clubs who maybe have been passed over, but the cycle of coaches kind of going through the, um, the MLS ranks leans more toward one demographic as opposed to the number of black head coaches. Now, I don't know if they're applying for all these roles. I don't know the different, uh, what's happening in those conversations, but just looking at it uh, on paper and reading it, it's not happening, uh, in my opinion, at a fast enough rate where black coaches are getting access to a point where it's kind of like, oh, it's okay that you're the academy coach, or it's okay if you are uh, a community director or focused on youth, but we don't want to put you in charge or we don't want to make you a GM, or if we do make you a GM, we're going to make it so difficult for you to be successful that it's kind of a placeholder until we have the next person come in. And I think that's the opportunity for all clubs um, to do a little bit better, especially when you have the number of Black players in the league with the amount of minutes and games and exposure that they've had that know enough about the league now that they can make that jump into a front office. You know, So I, I look at Guys like um, Darius Barnes, who just won um, Executive of the Year for uh, for MLS Next. He's a guy that works from the MLS office, or it was a player, 
went to the MLS office, then went to Charlotte and has all the skills to be a GM or a CBO or a president. Um, Justin Morrow, same thing. Umpteen years in Toronto, now is doing DEI work uh, for USC, but has the skills to jump back in the league right away and help out. So these guys are around the league. Um, even someone like Darlington Nagby, you know, you, you don't have a guy who's that humble, who has the mindset to win, and then just let him float post-playing. Like if I was the league, he'd be the first person I would hire to get into a C-level role, whether or not he has the experience. He's shown he has the capabilities to learn, grow, adapt, and win. That you'd want that as part of your organization or league for the future. So I think we have the players there. It's great for Wilfred and the and the crew to have the people and the places and the investment there. And I think there's more room to grow and and continue to invest in guys who put their time in the league to put in positions where they could help influence or make decisions. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing we've been talking about, and this has been another theme through all of these episodes, is that we're all caretakers. And that's kind of like a level, the best level you can hope to be at is the person who um, you've done your part to advance the game and hand it off to the next generation. And it's important if you're doing that, that your kids, that my my son, that people, that they see themselves in the game and that they see themselves at all places of the game. And that's that's a job we can do, right? That's something we can do to help hand the game off to make it better. But it's so important to see yourself in the place you want to be. Absolutely. I mean, we talked about it. It's, it's opening that door or even knowing that the door can be opened. Right. And it, it does take a first. And then, yeah, once it's opened up, I mean, then the expectation is, well, why can't I go do this thing? Or what's to stop me from doing said thing? Or, yeah, I see four or five other kids around me that look like me that are doing the same things that I can go do. So I'm going to try that. And that's where I, I, I do see the game getting better. I do see the amount of access getting better. You know, I, I coach my youngest son's team. And when I walk out in the field now, the number of black and brown coaches on the field has increased. The number of kids from different backgrounds or different parts of the city has increased. Uh, so it's not necessarily just the wealthiest kids or the wealthiest families investing in playing in this game. Do we still have them to grow? Absolutely. Uh, but when I look at my son's team now and the makeup of the kids uh, where it's 50 to 60% of the group are uh, families of color who have a background, you know, whether it's first generation, whether it's from different parts of the country, that has increased. So that gives me, that gives me hope that in a state, in a region that folks always keep saying how it's so white up here or it's so dominantly one demographic that no, that, that's actually not the case. Um, we choose the environment that we create. Um, so. so you 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 stepped right into what I was going to ask you about next. You're the head coach for the 2012 boys at United PDX. What are you trying to do in that position uh, with that team and club? And how does your experience growing up and being a timber help you specifically in that? Ooh, good question. Uh, I think for coaching that group, it is a 
it is an exceptional group of young student athletes that I want to teach and help inspire them to love the game, to take it to a level as high as they want to go and be able to give that back to their kids one day, their relatives one day, um, and just be a part of it. And so I try to have a balance of fun and joy while also dripping in the structure that they'll need for if and when they go play in college or go play professionally and start to expose them to little things of, you know, when you walk up to the field, you just don't drop your bags everywhere, right? Everything's lined up, organized. Uh, and the expectation is that the balls are lined up, organized, the training bibs are lined up and organized, and the field's already set up before you step on the field. And those are small details as a coach that you have to have that mindset um, to be prepared ahead of time, to have a plan going into the practice so you know what you're getting after. Um, two, it's just being respectful of the number of people from the assistant coaches to the equipment managers, being respectful of them and the work that they do. Uh, and I think one of the things I always respected highly was the, the kit men. You know, so whether it was Sam Uni with the Timbers or, um, oh, God, now I'm trying to blank on the, uh, down in the Galaxy. Um, Raul with the Galaxy. Every function in the, in the team, in the locker room, and the coaching staff is absolutely vital to everybody's success. And so I try to teach the, the 2012s with that mindset that you're showing up to be the best version of yourself. You're trying to make other guys around you better. And you are a respected steward of the club and kind of the state too, whenever we travel and go somewhere else. Um, and and I'm, I'm very fortunate and privileged to coach that group. Like the kids are a thousand times better than I was at their age. They try different things. They do different things. And, and they're hungry and they, and they all want to go play professionally one day. So it's, on the one hand, it's easy because they all, I'll show up and they want to be there. And on the other hand, it's difficult because you're trying to make, you're trying to give them as much exposure to MLS, to the Premier League, to the, to the clubs that they emulate so that they're prepared to, when they get there one day on what to do and how to act. Okay, so I got one more for you if you're all right. Yeah. Okay, and I'll just say this. You're loved here. Once a timber, always a timber. There are a lot of you around, and I think that with your specific generation and time in Portland, bridging the space between the North American Soccer League and Major League Soccer and enabling Major League Soccer to be here, there could be even more of you in the game, in the community, specifically representing the Timbers and as we near 50 years. With your time at Adidas and working with Major League Soccer, with your colleagues from your career and your experience, everything we've been talking about, someone who actually once held the record for all-time minutes with the Timbers, uh, crest on your chest in what role or roles do you think former players might contribute to the club's culture and trajectory uh, especially here in Portland um, as we move forward how much time do we have to answer yeah, I, was, I was about to say there's no time limit <laughs> I I am a big proponent of the guys who have put time into a club whether it's they've only played a minute whether they only were a training player. Everybody should feel included and welcomed and, and, and 
be a part because they have helped in the history in some way, shape or form. So if you were only a training player, well, you were a training player that helped make the other guy who was starting that much better. And if you were a starter and you played umpteen minutes, well, you helped build the culture and the fan base that is now the foundation that it is today. Um, so I think that every former Timber should be reached out to. I think there should be a dedicated effort to making sure that if an alumni wants to go to a game, that there's always a ticket available. Um, I think the there's small things that could be done from just the you know pregame alumni events to postgame alumni events to just hanging out with fans that like being very aware that the level of stardom ha is much higher now with current players but those that are alumni that's kind of your free cachet in the community where you can invite those guys to come hang out with fans very low cost but the up um, the the return on that is so high because you get another level of storytelling that you can't do as a club organically. And so I would go as far as having alumni events. I would uh, get, you know, alumni swag so people know that alumni are walking around the stadium. Like other clubs, you see, um, you know, I'm a Manchester United supporter. When you see alumni walking with the red tie and the suit jacket, you know that they were part of the club. Like that is their alumni uniform. I think that's something that the Timbers can do as well. Um, and like I said earlier, I, there is such a unique engagement with businesses and organization and community partners here that I know alumni could help further grow and solidify those partnerships. All of us have different skill sets. You know, you brought up Lee Morrison. He's incredible at commercial real estate. Um, you have other guys that are currently coaches that are helping to grow uh, some of the more marginalized groups become powerhouses in the state. A little bit of time, energy, and even just conversation can help, uh, one, build back trust with the organization, but then two, help out those alumni as they further their careers. But I do think it takes a little more investment in the front office staff because this is not just a one-person job. It's probably a job of an entire team or department to track the history and archive it, to reach out to alumni on a regular basis, and then to set up the different types of events that are going to happen to to have that interaction. Yeah. So that'd be my, I guess, three-point plan to help get alumni more involved. What's needed because I think it, I think it, something like that also goes, I mean, it goes many ways, right? It reaches out, but it, it brings, it gives fans more access points to, to be a part of the club. It's a, right. It's a bridge to the club. And there's so many people here who now that we're getting into third, maybe even fourth generation of timber fan who have the same connection to the 1844 Morrison. Right. Uh, but it also could affect the product on the field as you build networks. You know, it's easier to discover players when you have more, people feeling connected yeah. and it, it's just you know that's something i'd i'd love to see and this is something i loved about the teams you played with seeing chris brown seeing andrew Gregor out there playing soccer because uh, those are guys you know i grew up with and they're out there playing and it would just be great yeah. to see see something like that again but uh yeah to your point there there's so many of you here and 
I don't know. I'd love to see you guys out there too. I mean, there are guys that are still here that I didn't even know were still here. Um, and I see them out in the field or I see them passing. I'm like, oh, uh, I think I saw Danny Mwanda the other day. Um, and I hadn't seen him in, in a few years. And to find out that he's coaching and running a club down in, uh, in Southwest Portland is, is great. Um, you know, guys like Footy Dansu, um, he does a lot of work with different clubs and, and running <clears throat> private sessions. You know, guys like that who people love being around, who are great people, but great teachers. If I was the club, I would grab up all those guys and have them in a room at every game. You know, guys like Mick Hoban and Willie Anderson, I would have them involved in every way, shape, or form because they're, they're the connectivity to the past. They're able to relate to people now and they can connect to the future um, to help continue stewarding the club forward. Scott, thanks so much for taking the time and, and sharing your journey with us and not just what Portland and soccer mean to you, but also what family means to you. And that's um, something that I, I noticed also came through this episode that I really appreciate. Um, hope to have you on again. Anytime. I appreciate you uh, having me on and letting me go on my soapbox. <laughs> but, uh, it's always fun to reminisce. Yeah. Good. All right. Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks. You ain't got to be 200 pounds or a giant at 7-3 To play this game called soccer, which is growing rapidly You can hear it on the radio, you will see it on TV But when the Portland boys appear, you will hear them sing with glee Green is the colour, soccer is the game We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim so let's see.